Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 278, The Historical Relationship Between Russia and China. Last time, we finished up our five-part series on the Gulag. Today, we will discuss the relationship between Russia, the Soviet Union, and China. For today's episode, I'll be using four main works. A History of Russia by Ryazanovsky and Steinberg, A History of China by John Key, A History of Modern Russia by Robert Service, and Russia, A History by Gregory Fries. A failed em- and I'm going to lean a little bit for a fifth book called A Failed Empire by Vladislav Zubok. I chose A History of China because I wanted to see things from both sides and not just from the Russian point of view. One of my early difficulties with this episode was whether to include Russia's relationship with the Mongols. I know that they technically aren't Chinese, but they did rule China between 1271 and 1368. Still, the Mongols weren't interested in developing relationships between their vassal states. Quite the contrary, they would bar that to avoid any potential of creating combined enemies. That said, there was little evidence that the Muscovite state had any relationship with China during that period. There is some scant evidence that during the period of Kievan dominance, it had developed trade with the Chinese, as it is very likely that they did, but there's so little to go on, we're going to have to move on from that. It was not until 1640 when Russian merchants and explorers made contact with the Chinese with the founding of settlements in the Amur River Basin. This area would become a major bone of contention and the possible trigger point of a major nuclear war, but we'll get into that later. The conquering of the Khanites of Kazan and Astrakhan opened the doors to the expansion of Muscovite Russia into Siberia. Siberian Cossacks traveled over the Stanovoy Mountains to the Amur River Basin. The Manchus claimed this area as they were just beginning their conquest of China. They would be known as the Qing Dynasty, spelled Q-I-N-G. Between 1652 and 1689, the Russians were constantly under attack and were driven back over the mountains. The Stanovoy Mountains would remain the Russo-Chinese frontier border from the Treaty of Nurchinsk of 1689 to the Treaty of Aigun in 1859. The Treaty of Nerchinsk was signed on August 27, 1689. The signatories were Songatu on behalf of the Kangxi Emperor and Fyodor Golovin on behalf of the Russian Tsars Peter I and Ivan V. Originally, the meeting was set to be in the town of Selijinsk near Lake Baikal in October 1688, but this had to be changed as warring factions were duking it out in the area. Interestingly, the original treaty was written in Latin, having been translated into Russian early on, with the Chinese version not actually finalized for several years. What both sides wanted was the Amur River Basin. 
The Russians knew they were ill-prepared to defend that region, so they agreed to the Treaty of Nurchinsk to open trade relations with China. Russia was further hampered in protecting their gains as they were fighting the Ottoman Empire at that time. The treaty had six parts, with the first and second defining the border. The third called for the Russian fort at Albazan to be abandoned and destroyed. The fourth dealt with the refugees who arrived before the treaty, allowing them to stay. For those arriving after the treaty, they were to be sent back. Section 5, to find trade to commence if the partners had the proper documents. And Part 6 called for erecting boundary stones and language that would help avoid conflict in the future. Trade would continue between 1689 and 1727, but there were problems on the Russian-Mongolian border. The Oirat Dzungar Khanate threatened the newly entrenched Manchus, consolidating power as the Qing dynasty. The Oirat were Mongols known as the Forest People. They would not recognize the Manchu government, which led them to wanting a treaty with Russia to avoid their support for the Oirat. Now, this is the Chinese uh, Manchu government didn't want the Russians to help here. Well, this would lead to the signing of the Treaty of Kayatka in 1727 under Tsar Peter II. The negotiations for this treaty were initially started under Peter the Great during the last years of his life. The treaty would accomplish the following. Diplomatic and trade relations were established that lasted until the mid-19th century. It also set the northern border of Mongolia, which was then part of the King-Russian border. The caravan trade from Kayatka opened up Russian furs for Chinese tea, and the agreement with Russia helped China expand westward and annex Xinjiang. The Kayatka trade between King and Russia was vital to Russia as one of its primary sources of income. The king were aware of this and occasionally used to suspend the trade to exert pressure on the Russian rulers. This would lead to the Kayatka International Protocol of 1792, further protecting the trade between Russia and China. In the 18th century, Central Asia became a major focus of Russian expansion, especially in the area now known as Kazakhstan. This would increase the trade between Russia and China, although it would show a growing weakness within the Chinese government. Included in the ever-increasing trade with China was a new market, India. While the Chinese empire established its control over Xinjiang in the 1750s, the Russians continued to expand until the two empires' areas of control met in what is today eastern Kazakhstan and western Xinjiang. The 1851 Treaty of Kulja legalized trade between both countries in the region. This treaty was crucial to both Russia and China as it was in opposition to the British making inroads in China. Some suggest that the Treaty of Kulja was one of the reasons why Great Britain joined France and the Ottoman Empire in the Crimean War that began in 1853. While the treaty primarily legalized additional trade routes, it recognized the growing Russian presence in Central Asia. China's defenses on this border have been greatly neglected since the start of the 1800s. 
This was also a period of rapid decline in the strength of the Chinese government, which the Russians, as well as other European powers, would exploit. One of the interesting connections between Russia and China is through the Russian Orthodox Church, which sent missionaries to China, and in particular, their capital that we know of now as Beijing. The mission to Beijing began under Tsar Peter the Great and continued until the 1917 revolution. One priest, Father Bishurin, would write a fundamental work on the country. He led the Russian Orthodox mission to Beijing from 1807 to 1821. During his time in China, he learned fluent Manchu, Mongolian, and Chinese, and made some of the most accurate Qing dynasty maps of Beijing. After returning to Russia, he founded the country's first Chinese studies department in 1837. Now, Bichurin was not your typical priest, as he was known to be a champagne-drinking, womanizing, cigar-smoking kind of monk. And in the eyes of the Russian church, as you might imagine, this was not considered acceptable behavior. Even though he was put on house arrest after his return to St. Petersburg, Bichurin had many friends in high places. While researching Bichurin, I came across some fascinating history. In the aftermath of the 1685 siege of Albazan on the Sino-Russian border, the Emperor Kangzi gave the defeated Russian soldiers a choice. They could either return home or enroll in the Chinese army. Forty-four Cossacks accepted his offer and allegedly forced a priest to remain alongside them. When the group arrived in Beijing, they were granted a plot of land. This land remains the location of the Russian embassy to this very day. Such was Bichurin's devotion to China that at times he was accused of relying too heavily on Chinese sources in his work. However, when he died, even his staunchest critics had to admit that nobody meant as much to Russian Orientalism as this cigar-smoking monk. Starting in 1858 through 1860, through a series of unequal treaties forced upon the Qing dynasty of China, the Amur annexation of the southeast corner of Siberia by the Russian Empire added a vast area of former Chinese and Manchurian land. This was a period of Chinese history known as the Second Opium Wars. The start of this period was the signing of the Treaty of Aigun. This 1858 treaty between the Russian Empire and the Qing Dynasty, as I mentioned before, established much of the modern border between the Russian Far East and China by ceding much of Manchuria, the ancestral homeland of the Manchu people. Negotiations began after China was threatened with the war on the second front by Governor General of the Far East Nikolai Muriev when China was suppressing the Taiping Rebellion. The Russians camped tens of thousands of troops on the borders of Mongolia and Manchuria, which essentially forced the Chinese to sign the treaty. To clarify things, the Taiping Rebellion was a civil war within China that lasted for 14 years between 1850 and 1864. The Second Opium War was an external threat to China that went on between 1856 and 1860. 
Both conflicts severely weakened the Qing dynasty, allowing Russia, Great Britain, and France to take advantage of the Chinese. When the Second Opium War ended, Russia, France, and Great Britain called for a meeting with China, known as the Convention of Peking. Prince Gong, the regent of the Chinese Empire, was compelled to sign two treaties on behalf of the Qing government with Lord Elgin and Baron Gross, who represented Britain and France respectively. Although Russia was not belligerent, Prince Gong also signed a treaty with Nikolai Ignatiev. These treaties are part of those known as the Unequal Treaty, a name given by the Chinese to a series of these treaties signed during the 19th and early 20th centuries between China of the Qing Dynasty and various Western powers, included, of course, Great Britain, France, the German Empire, the United States, and the Russian Empire, as well as the Empire of Japan. These series of treaties would leave a bad taste in the mouth of many Chinese, especially after the Chinese Revolution and the ascendancy of the Communists. The term unequal treaty became associated with the concept of China's, quote, century of humiliation, unquote, which occurred between the 1840s and 1950, especially the concessions to foreign powers and the loss of tariff autonomy through treaty ports. The Russians, though, had a better relationship with the Chinese than did the other Western powers. They were more interested in fair trade, while the others just wanted to take advantage of China. The relationship between these two countries was not handled by the monarchs, as was the case with the West, but by legislative bodies of both nations. One of the main objectives, aside from trade, that the Russians really, really wanted was a warm-weather port. This would become known as Vladivostok. According to the Chinese viewpoint of that, this was uh, something that Russians would supply secret support to them against the West. Well, this actually, of course, was a ruse, and it worked as the treaties were never to the benefit of the Chinese. Towards the end of the 19th century, this is what the book China a History has to say about things. Quote, the Russians debated plans for detaching Mongolia, Manchuria, and Xinjiang. The British began to take an interest in Tibet. The French, lately established in what they called Indochina, showed a proprietary interest in Guangxi and Yunnan, and Japan, which was transformed by the Mijai reforms, staked a claim to Ryukyu and an interest in Korea that would soon also extend into Manchuria. While the Russians and Chinese were unequal trading partners, another antagonist was operating in Asia, Great Britain. We are now in the post-Crimean War period, and there was still a lot of concern in England about the expansion of Russia into Asia. Their genuine concern was about the control of India and the surrounding territories. One of those areas of contention was Xinjiang. Russia had seized the land under the guise of protecting their trade routes. When an envoy to St. Petersburg from China signed the Treaty of Levadia in 1879, it caused an uproar in Beijing. 
the ill-informed diplomat gave in to the Russian demand for a permanent stay in Xinjiang. By 1881, a new treaty was signed, which repudiated the prior agreement. The Chinese believed that they had forced the hand of the Russians, but in truth, the British and other countries put pressure on St. Petersburg. By 1898, Germany had entered the picture and was given a port in Shandong, Qingdao. This made the Russians ask for more land to complete the Trans-Siberian Railway. This linked Vladivostok with Russia for the first time. Of course, the British, they got more access to ports. The French got mining rights and the Americans, well, they demanded that everybody had access to everything. This partitioning of China stirred up intense nationalist fervor led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. This would lead to the Boxer Rebellion starting in late 1899. With the death of the young emperor and his dowager mother, Kixi, the Qing Dynasty was on its last leg. The Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05 was the first time that an Asian country defeated a Western force in such a convincing fashion. It would lead many within China to believe that they could eventually throw off the yoke of the West. From 1911 to 1950, the country would be in almost eternal civil war or at war with the Japanese. With the Russian Revolution in 1917, the relationship between Russia and China took a, what you'd call a hiatus. That is, until there was a possibility that the Chinese government would take a turn toward communism. In 1920, Soviet troops, with the support of Mongolian guerrillas led by Damdim Sukhbatar, defeated the white army warlord Ungern von Sternberg and established a new pro-Soviet Mongolian client state. By 1924, it had become the Mongolian People's Republic. In 1924, Soviet Foreign Minister Grigory Chicherin began to open formal relations between his country and China. This would lead to the Soviets initially backing the Kuomintang, who were working in conjunction with Mao Zedong's led communists. When Kuomintang leader Chiang Kai-shek abruptly dismissed his Soviet advisors and imposed restrictions on CCP participation in the government in 1926, the Soviets decided to back Mao, leading to the horrific Chinese Civil War. During World War II, the Soviet Union backed the communist side in China, but they had more than they could handle in their own country, obviously. After the war, the Soviets provided the last bit of aid to Mao and his army, and to finally end this civil war, late 1949, early 1950. This was one of the first victories of communism led by the Soviet Union. Between 1950 and 60, the bond between China and the Soviet Union went from a father-son relationship to an antagonistic one bordering on war. When Stalin was alive, the bond between the two countries was strong, as Mao and the Soviet leader had similar ideas about Marxism-Leninism and the way to control their respective countries, especially the use of violence. With Stalin's death, things began to sour quickly. 
The turning point was Khrushchev's secret speech at the 20th Party Congress on February 25, 1956, when he denounced Stalin's purges and ushered in a less repressive era in the Soviet Union. Mao was reportedly furious when he found out what Khrushchev had said. Another difference between the two sides was that China took a belligerent stance towards the Western world and publicly rejected the Soviet Union's policy of peaceful coexistence between the Western Bloc and Eastern Bloc. Also, the Soviet Union was beginning to soften relations with India, a country that had disputes with China regarding several border areas. The Sino-Indian border dispute is an ongoing territorial dispute over the sovereignty of two relatively large and several smaller separated pieces of territory between China and India. The Soviets wanted to bring India over to the side of communism and socialism, while China wanted to ostracize their neighbor. By 1958, Chinese domestic policies developed an anti-Soviet tone from the ideological disagreement over de-Stalinization and the radicalization that preceded the Great Leap Forward. In 1962, the Sino-Indian War broke out. As the Sino-Soviet split deepened, the Soviet Union made a major effort to support India, especially with the sale of advanced MiG fighter aircraft. Simultaneously, the United States and the United Kingdom refused to sell advanced weaponry to India, further compelling it to turn to the Soviets for military aid. Another country that the Soviets were having trouble with was Albania. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with this relationship? But bear me out here. Their leader, Enver Hoxha, refused to support reforms against Stalin's legacy. Khrushchev, in 1960, withdrew support from Albania. This would give China another chance to increase its influence within the communist world by replacing the aid from the USSR with its own. When the Soviets shot down Gary Powers' U-2 plane, Mao expected a sharp reaction from them, which did not occur. Furthermore, at the 1960 International Meeting of Communist and Workers' Parties, Mao and Khrushchev, each other's interpretations of Marxism-Leninism, they disagreed as it's, one would say was the wrong road to world socialism in the USSR and in China. Mao argued that Khrushchev's emphasis on consumer goods and material plenty would make the Soviets ideologically soft and unrevolutionary, to which Khrushchev replied, quote, If we could promise the people nothing except for revolution, they would scratch their heads and say, Isn't it better to have good goulash? Well, in 1966, the Chinese revisited the national matter of the Sino-Soviet border which we talked about, imposed upon the Qing dynasty by the way of the unequal treaties that annexed Chinese territory to the Russian Empire. This would lead to one of the most dangerous moments in world history. Soviet armed forces had stationed six divisions of soldiers in Outer Mongolia and 16 divisions, 1,200 airplanes, and 120 medium-range missiles at the Sino-Soviet border to confront 47 light divisions of the Chinese army. By March 
1969, the border confrontations escalated, including fighting at the Usuri River, the Zhenbao Island incident, and Tilakaleti. Things continued to be tense between the two countries until the death of Mao in 1976. There was still one more tense standoff between the two nations, and this involved the Sino-Vietnamese War of 1978 and 79. The Soviets supplied military weapons to the Vietnamese, which irked the Chinese. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979, the Chinese decided to halt reconciliation talks in response. In the 1980s, the relationship between the two countries improved dramatically. Sino-Soviet relations were finally normalized after Mikhail Gorbachev visited China in 1989 and shook Deng Xiaoping's hand. The renewed demarcation of the border between the two countries was agreed upon in 1991, and they signed the Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Friendly Cooperation in 2001, which was renewed in June 2021 for five more years. The relationship between the two countries has ebbed and flowed under Putin and Xi Jinping, but improved dramatically when the U.S. put sanctions on Russia following its annexation of Crimea in 2014. Well, I'm going to end things here as we're now leaving the historical relationship and entering current events. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we start a two-part series or look back at the entirety of Russian and Soviet history to determine the most important turning points, moments that change the trajectory of the country and its people. So, until next time, das vidanya i spasiba za venjemanja.